Welcome to the International Bus Podcast brought to you by Wobi. I'm your co-host, Tanya Falkner. And I'm your co-host, Robert Rogi. And for today's show, we invited Jeanette Stewart. Jeanette is an accomplished globalization leader with extensive strategic experience on both the client and the vendor side. She's the former CEO of a translation company for life sciences, which she sold to RWS, and now advises businesses on best practices for their global content and workflows. She's also the co-founder of Translation Commons, an online nonprofit organization aiming to offer and share tools and resources to facilitate community initiatives. Welcome to the show, Jeanette. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here and chatting with you. Cool. So let's go ahead and jump in with just like a little overview of uh, Translation Commons. So it started with a LinkedIn group, but then it grew to thousands of members. So let's talk about what it is and how it came to be. And, and why don't you just tell us the story? Sure. You know how it is when you meet all your colleagues and co-workers and you go to conferences and you have wonderful conversations and you exchange news and everything. And at that point, you know, you, you always address your pain points and all the things that could be done better, you know, for your work and your profession and your industry. And that's how Translations Commons started, by talking with various people in conferences and saying, wouldn't it be nice if we had a more of a community feel? Because it's great, we, we meet here, you know, every year or twice a year or something, but we actually then go back and we don't have anything of a community that we can rely upon. And that's, of course, if you're a translator, you have all your associations. But if you're a professional in this industry, you have nothing. So we felt in conversations that a community that would be organic, that would not have an agenda, that, you know, the, the members of the community can turn around and say, you know, guys, let's work on this one because something needs to be done here. Let's sit together and discuss it. Let's brainstorm. What can we do that would improve our working conditions and everything? So it's not a political, but rather a functional, operational. And that's how it started by saying, okay, what do we need to do a community and how can it be global if our industry is global? And of course, the obvious is, you know, let's do it online and let's have a platform that we can all meet. So we got together a, a small advisory board of professionals, both client and uh, vendor side and academia. And uh, we were saying, how can we encapsulate the entire industry in one platform? Is it possible? And then, of course, one of our engineers, he's now in Pinterest, Jean Orobot, uh, he, he came up with the idea that everything would fall under three categories, translate, share, or learn, because this is how everything that we do is under. So translate would include the technology, the tools, the automation, the actual processes and functions. The share would include everything that we need to share and, and work together and collaborate. And the learn would be all the things that are missing from our curriculums or from, you know, the professional enrichment that we can bring together to people. And that's how it started very, very slowly. Uh, at the time I wrote a post on LinkedIn, it had an amazing response from people saying, yeah, yeah, we could do something like that. This is such a good idea. So we said, okay, let's try this out. <laughs> so we created a LinkedIn group 
And I will never forget, it was like the 4th of December at the end of the year. And by the 1st of January, there were over a thousand members. So in literally 25 days, and obviously, you know, with Christmas in between and the holidays, it was, it just took fire, (laughs) was on fire. And since then, we said, okay, let's get a little bit more serious here. What do we need to do this platform? And we started asking people and we got Google to donate uh, the G Suite. Uh, we're using the, the WordPress, uh, you know, free version. We've got engineers donating their time and all the volunteers. So where we are today is that we are a volunteer nonprofit which has no funding. And everything you see that has happened in Translation Commons is the result of volunteers because they feel passionate about it and and they put the hours and the time to do something that everybody would benefit. The very, very first one that kind of put Translation Commons on the road that it is today was a blog post on, uh, actually not even, it was just the main post in the Translation uh, Commons LinkedIn group where somebody said, well, what about mentoring of freelancers? There's a lot of mentoring going on everywhere. But as a freelancer, how can I take somebody under my wing when I'm not a teacher, I'm not a coach, I don't know how to mentor? And that brought a lot of freelancers uh, together saying, yeah, I would want to know more about it. So we created a group and it was about 100 people. And we did a survey. And we kept the survey going for about four to six months. Then we took the results and we created an analysis. From the analysis, we created conclusions and all these documents are available. And then we got about 20 of the team to become the authors of a document. And we created the mentoring guidelines, which is a nearly 70 page document. It had two iterations and it had lots of people working. And when we actually published it, we got an amazing response from an actual translation company saying, you know what, we were looking to do a mentoring program and we just didn't know how to start because we thought we had to do the whole thing. And here you are, you gave us the basis. So we can take now this and adapt it. And that's the whole idea behind Translation Commons. We want to be creating guidelines, helping, you know, everybody take this and adapt it for your own purposes. And right now we're working on internship guidelines. And of course, this brings us to the International Year of Indigenous Languages, which is a major document that we're working with a lot of technical people on creating guidelines for all sorts of communities that are in different levels of digitization, how to, you know, step by step, guiding them how to become more digitized. I was going to say, and it is uh, International Translation Day today. So like, uh, you know, the listeners uh, out there, this won't be published uh, right away today, but it is International Translation Day and it is the year of the indigenous languages and stuff. So we are timely for the recording. Very auspicious. And yeah, what you just briefly mentioned was that the project you have for this year of uh, Indigenous languages. And we actually wanted to know a little bit more about both projects, because I think there's two projects coming up, right? Yeah. Can you tell us more about those? So the International Year of Indigenous Languages, let's start from there, is designed to create awareness in 2019. And there's a lot of organizations that are part of this 
and creating awareness. So at the beginning of the year, they said uh, we need partners because we need to have specific, you know, projects going on. So Translation Commons became a partner based on how we work <laughs> and what it is that we actually, you know, have as deliverables. And uh, we discussed for quite a bit and brainstormed, but the two very obvious projects, which are the ones that actually managed to take roots and be as strong as they are today, are one dealing with universities and the other one dealing with the technical digitization. So the universities is creating awareness by creating university events for the month of October. Now, we did say the month of October, but it can be, you know, taken a little bit broader for the semester of fall 2019. And what we're asking all the professors and universities of language departments and is to create even one classroom event where the students can become aware of indigenous languages. And of course, this is global. So if there are indigenous languages in the university or the country, you know, make a mention about them, bring a specialist, bring somebody, show a video, you know, create that awareness to the students that, you know, you're studying languages here. You need to know about all of these indigenous languages as well in your area. To do that, we brought together a whole team of people and we had professors, we had um, industry people and professionals, and we have had a lot of students and a lot of volunteers, young professionals, graduates. And uh, one of the first things that we needed to do is make the list. So we had, uh, you know, a publicly available list of about uh, 700 universities, but we didn't have emails, we didn't have contacts. So one of our, um, the chair of actually of the professors group in Translation Commons, Mila Golovin, she has a company in Houston, Masterworks, and she got a whole bunch of high schooler interns and they came into her office and she created an internship for them where they were taught various things, but they were also part of the Translation Commons International Year of Indigenous Languages Partnership. And their task was to learn how to research, how to find the right contacts. So through this, they actually learned what it is in education, you know, the language departments, the, the uh, different programs that the language departments give. And then how to contact, what is the structure of this departments in universities? There's a dean, there's a principal, you know, the professors, the associate professors, and do this research of how, who is going to be the right person and the right email for us to send an email about this. So it was a learning process for high schoolers who are going to become, you know, university students soon to understand how the whole academic of languages, uh, language programs works. That's really cool, yeah. And uh, Mila was a guest uh, recently as well, so she, she's super cool. Yes, she is. It's, uh, it's nice when business people have interests and uh, on the side and, and volunteer and try to do other things. Oh, Mila is extremely active. Uh, she's the chair of the professors group, and uh, there's so much activity going in this group. So anyway, back to the university events, and I can talk later for the professors group. After the interns got the list, we started a campaign. And then again, we have another team of wonderful people. We have our volunteer, Johanna Bem, 
and she is uh, responsible for the marketing and social media for this campaign of indigenous languages. So she gathered a team of about 10, 15 people, volunteers, and she has been training them and teaching them how to do the marketing campaign and the social media campaign, all about SEOs, all about, you know, social listening, all the wonderful things that they need to know. And they have started a campaign alongside the newsletters that are being sent out. So they've created a wonderful awareness. And now we're starting to have universities come to us. And on the website, we have them registering. And once they register their event, and they give us the date and the title, we then uh, go to the International Year of Indigenous Languages website, and we registered it there. So it's all centralized on that website. And this awareness we are creating with the universities is going to culminate in the action plan of UNESCO in the next few years, where they're going to invite all of these professors and universities that have created events to create a, a network for research purposes and for anything that we need to do through academia. Yeah, I was just, uh, you know, I thought maybe it would be a good idea to uh, jump in on the indigenous languages topic. Could you just describe the overall goal of the well, not just the the year, but of the UNESCO initiative, and like, what are they trying to achieve besides just awareness of indigenous languages? Are they trying to protect them, or just recognize them, or like, what's the larger? All of the above. Yeah. Yes, it's it, it's all of the above. It's a vast project, and it's more than a project. It's a program, or it's you know something which is going to become bigger. They're starting by having 2019 the year of, of awareness and by reaching out to all these organizations and the people, they're gathering information and they're at the end of the year, they're going to have an outcome report. And in this outcome report, they're going to be able then to home in on things that need to be done whether this is part of the digitization, which is capacity building, whether it is about language reclamation and revitalization, whether it is the cultural aspects or whether it is creating those standard environments that can assimilate the indigenous groups and give them exactly the same, you know, the standards that we have in everything. Because it's not just the standards of living, it's on the internet, the ability, you know, to have their language. It is the educational system. Some of them need to be able to have their kids, you know, in elementary environments learn the language. So there is a huge action plan waiting to be done. And of course, it can't be done unless it is strategically put into some sort of order and uh, the players come on board. So we're doing our little bit. And this brings us to the second project that we're doing, because this will have a much a bigger impact in the future, which is the digitization. So we're creating this document which our first working title was from zero to digital. And then we were told, well, you can't have that because maybe it can be a little bit offensive. So we're just saying right, right. going digital, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. mm-hmm. it is. So, so we're saying, you know, getting started or, you know, going digital, whatever stage you're at. And as you know, there's a lot of languages that are only verbal. 
And we will deal with them, but this document deals only with the written languages, the ones that do have a script. And of these languages, it, it's roughly about 4,000. And if you look at Unicode, which is the encoding system for the, the characters, you only have 1,000 of them. So there's another 3,000 scripts that could go through the process of having a proper encoding, therefore they can become digital. Then on top of that, you know, that's the first initial stage. Then you have to have a keyboard. How can you write, you know, unless that script and that particular character exists on a keyboard? Mm. So creating the keyboards is also important. And again, we, we have quite a few, you know, hundreds of uh, keyboards, but not everything. So creating those keyboards is important, whether it's going to be mobile or desktop. Mm. Also on the software side too. Exactly. So not just not just necessarily a hardware keyboard because, I mean, you you can always type on a on a foreign keyboard not knowing the letters, as long as you know where the, <laughs> the letters are, right? Yes. But on the software side, how do you decide which letter goes on which key? You know, for different there's a, that's a big project, yeah. Exactly, and there are organizations that are do this voluntarily. So all these groups, the indigenous groups, they can actually find a way of getting help, you know, for free, but they need to be involved. So what we're doing now is we're creating a guidelines document. And it's a very simple concept of yes and no tree. You know, do you have a script? Yes. Okay, let's go to the next step. No. Okay, let's take you back here. This is what you need to do. Is it encoded? Yes, that's fine. No, let's go to Unicode. Here's what you need to Unicode. You apply to Unicode to do A, B, C, D. Here's the links. Here's all the information you need to do it. Now, you know, the, and it goes on like this for all the steps that we need. And of course, as it is going down the tree, it becomes more and more technical and complicated. And at this stage, we're thinking that maybe we need to have some volunteers help these groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they for sure need help. I mean, ask, asking them to, I'm imagining some of the things related to keyboards or even just like creating a script, like you would have to have a team of experts help with that, I think. Absolutely. So we're now talking about creating that infrastructure as Translation Commons getting our volunteers. But what is starting to bubble up right now is that all of these organizations, and some of them are global, like Unicode, the Endangered Language Projects, Living, Living Tongues, you know, Wikitongues. There's so many organizations that we're all part of the language environment. We're starting to say, okay, what if we were to get together and do something much larger and get all our strengths together? And this is where we are right now. We're starting to talk about coalition, cooperation, collaboration, consortium, you know, partnership, whatever you want. But we're not exactly sure. But as part of the action plan now with UNESCO, we want to bring this to their attention that we need to get together because united, we can do a lot more. So it would make sense then people who have the field work like Living Tongues and Endangered Language Projects can bring that information to us. Then we have the technical expertise. We have all the engineers in Translation Commons that you know, can step up and say, okay, this is what needs to be done and train people. And then finally, we have all these students around the world 
who are both local and international, and we can train them to be the project managers, the in-between, you know, the technologist and the groups. Mm-hmm. So there, there is something that can be done in the future. So both of these projects have a lot of scope for development. So how do you even sort of rank where to begin? I mean, you know, there's a couple of languages, you know, you say there's 4,000 indigenous languages, right? So I'm sure there's a lot that only have, you know, a few people left that speak them or a few hundred people left that speak them, right? Is it ranked in terms of which ones are spoken the most? Is this, are those the ones that you start with? That would be a strategy that we would need to work on. The one thing that we have to be aware of is that just because we think that we can help them and want them to digitize doesn't mean that they want that. So we have always to be aware that we need them to want something first. So there will be groups that will come forward when it gets known through the UNESCO outcome report, and they'll come to us or they'll go to UNESCO. And that's the obvious way of how to start. But at the same time, the more we make it aware to these groups and they say yes, then we we will accordingly do it. Mm-hmm. So we, we would have to come up with a strategy. Of oh, course. yeah. I mean, it's almost like a necessary marketing You know, because I mean, sure, they can contact UNESCO, but like, like, do they know that they can contact UNESCO? Like, I didn't know you could contact UNESCO, you know, to ask them about, uh, you know, totally. scripts and keyboards. I, I had no idea. I know I know that Unicode is a consortium, right? Like they have a consortium, I think. Yes. But. Uh... Well, let me get back to the contact UNESCO. Yes, you can contact UNESCO, you know, pick up the phone and say, hi, guys, I'm here. But what happens is when you go to the International Year of Indigenous Languages, you will see all the governmental partnerships that are there. So groups can see where they belong and they can approach that government, which is a partner to the UN and UNESCO. And the other thing that we're doing, and I hope it will be part of the outcome uh, report, is we actually have created a form on our website where any group can come and say, this is us. We need help. You know, here's my email. Mm-hmm. And that's probably good. If yeah. they do that, yeah. Like the, 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 you mentioned government and like I'm thinking of, uh, you know, certain parts of the world where the government of a country may not want a particular group of people that lives within that country to have a script or a keyboard. Does that happen? Yeah, that's a very good point. It is possible because there are many younger governments, younger countries that want to unify their script and language. So they wouldn't necessarily understand the cultural aspect of keeping these languages alive. I had an example of this. I won't mention names and I won't mention anything, so I'm not offending anyone. But I've spent a lot of time recently in China teaching in a university. And we had assistant professors and professors and, uh, you know, master students of language degrees. And I had a brief conversation talking about in China, there's about 200 languages. And I was stunned that, you know, the language teachers and professors didn't know that. Or if they were aware that there were languages, I presumed that the directive is let's stick to the official language. And that's what they are doing in in their educational system. That means that these 200 languages have no support. Mm-hmm. 
What happens with those communities that don't even have access to, you know, go to your website, find those resources, contact UNESCO? <laughs> yes, that's a very good point as well. I was speaking yesterday with a PhD researcher from Berkeley University, and he's working with a, a group in Peru, and they don't have internet access. It's, uh, you know, uh, uh, temperamental. You know, sometimes they have, sometimes they don't. So for them, it's very important to be able to work offline. So we need to take that into consideration as well as part of the strategy that, you know, some of the digitization has to be done for offline, not, not everything online. Okay, what do we mean by digitization offline? I, I, I briefly baked my noodle there. <laughs> okay, so when we talk about digitization, we mean, you know, being online, being able to communicate mm -hmm. using Facebook, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, using all these things. Okay, so this means that you have an internet yeah. connection. But a lot of uh, times, you know, oh, yeah, you, yeah. you just want to write a word. Oh, you mean like literally you know, offline. offline, like not, not connected. Ah, right on. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, so for example, <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you a very good example, actually. Living Tongues, which is a nonprofit, has a new app, which is called um, Talking Dictionaries. And you can be offline for that. So you record. It, it's for all those languages that may not have a script or may have a script, but they want to create, you know, the, the, the verbal dictionary. And offline, you just record the words, you know, so that can be done without Internet connection. Well, I think that this would be very interesting to get back to. You know, once like the project is rolling with UNESCO and everything, so maybe we can do a follow-up podcast on this one. But also today we wanted to talk to you a little bit about globalization as well. We've seen that you published an article with Multilingual Magazine a while back where you talked about champion globalizers and you mentioned Anna Stegel as one of those people who are leading the way for us in globalization. And I'm sure that over the years you've seen you know, you've seen the industry evolve and change. And I guess we're wondering where do you think this path is leading us or people like Anders Legel are leading us and what needs to happen for the globalization industry? Yeah, well, thank you for this opportunity because, you know, we can speak about our projects and passionate that we're passionate about, like indigenous languages. But at the end of the day, we got to, you know, be realistic and say, this is where the business is. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what we did, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, um... well, we need both sides, right? But without, you know, the business, yeah. there wouldn't be any people like yourself or Mila who can take on projects like indigenous languages. True enough. True. Very true. Hey, as you know, we like to keep things mostly non-commercial around here, and we like to just stick to interviewing the guests about fascinating subjects. But we would like to take a moment to mention a little bit about WordBee Translator. WordBee Translator is the translation management system developed by WordBee over the last 10 years. So we are celebrating 10 years now. It's all in one system, so you can manage projects. It also has linguistic tools. It has tools for finance, business analytics. And it's been around for 10 years, so it does pretty much anything you want. 
Before working for Wordbee, I also used Wordbee Translator. One of my favorite things about it was actually the invoicing because it made it really easy to manage supplier invoices, create them, and just not have to deal too much with the financial side of things. But other customers appreciate other things, like for example, it's a native cloud technology, so it's really collaborative. You know, you can keep track of what's going on in there at uh, any, any moment in your project. It's easy to set up different job assignment methods. You know, you can check your stats at any time. You can see how your project managers are performing. You can see how your translators are doing. And yeah, it does pretty much everything you want. It ends up fitting your organization like a glove, as we say. So that was just a word about Wordbee Translator. Now, without further ado, back to the podcast. So let's go to globalization. So we know that globalization is a vast subject, you know, and it is not just about business. It's economic, it's cultural, it's uh, technological, it is anthropological, it's huge. So we can't deal with all of these things. So, you know, if we bring it down, you know, to the business level, it's not something which is new at all. So think about the Silk Road, right? We're talking about, you know, 2000 years ago, the Silk Road was a trade route. And, you know, still we have trade routes <laughs> today. But uh, the concept was always there, how to sell in more markets, how to expand, you know, and how to make more profit. And based on that, we have now all these technological advances that enable us to do this very, very easy. So whereas before we depended on the shipping industry and transportation industry to distribute our goods, now we have the internet and e-commerce and everything is done online. So talking about where will we go next, I need to bring it down to who we are. And being the language industry, we've always suffered from uh, lack of exposure of what we do, enabling all of this to happen. So whereas before we started as linguists doing a mere translation, now we are in a stage where we are part of the process of this international expansion and selling. And as part of the process, we're considered to be a link in the entire supply chain or in the entire chain of events. So where we are and where we will be is that this chain or the link that we have within this chain is going to be expanded. And instead of us being just merely an enabler, we are going to become an advisor and a consultant to the entire industry. So we've been seeing recently that a lot of our globalization directors or localization managers are starting to be elevated within the large corporations. And Anna Schlegel is one example where, you know, she started from being a manager of a very small group of two or three people to growing the team constantly and adding aspects to the job description of the department and the processes and workflows until she reached that level that globalization was integral to the entire operations. And she's now a VP, a vice president. So I was told by a few people that, you know, we have actually counted how many VPs we have in North America. And we have 13 or 14 with Anna VPs. Now, I don't know all of them. I know two or three. And true enough, 
this is a trend that has happened over the last you know, five, 10 years recently. And not all corporations are open to this. There are still large corporations that, you know, the globalization and localization is a small, tiny link somewhere. And of course, we have to understand that their structure is very different. So the client side structure from the vendor side structure are two different environments. And I can go into that if you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can go into that. And I, I have a kind of a, a separate question that's a little bit offbeat, actually. But like, just kind of like linking it back to our humanitarian concerns. I don't know, like with, with globalization as a profession becoming elevated and knowing that some multinationals have suspicious and dubious practices when they produce things or do things globally, how do you think that ethics, do you think that ethical considerations are going to be of growing importance for localization and globalization professionals? Well, regulation is what takes care of ethics, right? <laughs> and regulation is something that exists and changes over time. And what is today may not be tomorrow and so on and so forth. However, once something is regulated, and let's take the life sciences you know, industry, you know, a hundred years ago, the regulation wasn't in place. Today, for example, the pharmaceutical company in the 60s and the 70s could get approval by the FDA to, you know, market something before they had done the full range of side effects uh, research. Mm -hmm. And then they would get information coming back to them and just find out that there are issues. So what they do now is they have a lot of stricter considerations when they give approval. So one way of doing that is by restricting the target group. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they're saying, okay, it can't just be everybody with diabetes. It has to be, you know, a group of people in diabetes that, uh, you know, satisfy these parameters only. And this is your target. So you can get approval for that. And at the same time, they ask for more rigorous research. Now, in our industry of localization, we don't have these issues. You know, we're either going to translate something or not translate it. There's nothing controversial about this. Where the controversy is in the regulation is uh, becoming the data. And, of course, language is data as well. And at some point, we will find that um, a lot of the data that uh, are at the moment is monolingual will start having a multilingual, you know, usage. And this is where machine translation is coming into play. I don't think we're quite there yet, although all the signs are there. We're not, we're there as technology is concerned, but we're not there as exploitation is concerned. <laughs> I don't believe they have managed to take all of that. But there's regulations because you see that uh, countries now are saying to the big technology giants that unless you retain the data in servers within the country, we're not going to allow you to be on the internet in this country. And that's one of the big regulations that is happening right now in our industry, where governments are imposing these big giants to have local servers and not export that data out. So as part of regulation, we'll see a lot of new things coming up. And some of the, these will, uh, you know, stand and some of them will not. At some point, we may see a more international regulation. But uh, again, this is to do with the product more 
rather than us as the service of creating it. Mm-hmm. Excellent answer. Yes. And you truly do know everything. <laughs> <laughs> You're kind. <laughs> so I want to, you know, go back to one point uh, that we were talking about globalization. And one of the things which is very, very different is our structures. So a lot of vendor side people do not understand fully how client side team is actually operating. And the vendor side team is mostly more simple because it's uh, designed around providing the service and the products that, that they provide. But on the client side, it can be very different from industry to industry, but even within the same industry from one company to another, one corporation to the other. So recently, some of us have come together in Translation Commons as part of the professors group, and we're trying to create some guidelines or a checklist or a list of things that are important for academics to be aware of because, you know, our industry changes rapidly and academic curriculum don't change as fast. So we're coming together and saying, well, when we hire newly graduated people, there's a lack of knowledge in certain aspects. So what can we do to help there? It's not that the uh, academia and our institutions aren't really, really good. They are. And they are trying everything they can to be responsive to all the changes. But still, there are so many idiosyncrasies from one company to the other that they can't cover everything. So we thought, okay, let's get together and do a list of things that, you know, would be important to be part of the curriculum, just to help. And we're not talking about, you know, the 20, 30 big institutions that are very, very well into localization and translation management and all of these things. We're talking about the 700 language departments around the world that don't have what uh, the Monterey Institute and Leeds and Kent State and uh, Austin and and the rest of them have. Okay, so these are above board. So we're not talking Mm -hmm. about them. We're talking about everybody else. And we're creating these courses on the Learning Center of Translation Commons where we're going to have as much information as we can. And we're getting experts from absolutely everything to add. And even if it isn't a complete a thesis on a subject, at least it's going to be there. So this is what we're trying. That sounds like a good idea. Can I jump in with an example? I think it's the most simple one I can think of about clients and vendors not really understanding each other would be like the vendor gets a PDF document that is obviously originally a Word document and says, can you send me the Word file? And the client says, oh my God, it's a Word file? (laughs) <laughs> you know, it would be, and the client has no idea how to get the word file, who made the word file. Like it could yeah. have been like some third party company that they were working with that that made this document for them and but send them a PDF because that was the final delivery. Doc, blah, 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 blah. You know, but for yeah, it's a, I think that's a classic example of like vendors and clients not really understanding each other and clients being kind of a black box to vendors. And there's a good reason for it. I mean, since every organization has a lot of gaps within their workflows, they don't want to advertise that. Who who wants to advertise it? 
I mean, all the vendors have gaps, right? They don't advertise it either. When they go to pitch to a client, they say they're their perfect match. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah. Everyone does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So keeping in mind that, I wanted to share a little bit about how some structures are on the client side. So mm-hmm. what is important to understand is that there is a huge strategy or a framework of strategies to be more precise. So an organization is going to have their international strategy. They're going to have um, their marketing strategy. They're going to have all sorts of, uh, let's say, the distribution strategy, all sorts of strategies that are important, right? And within each strategy, there is another subsection of strategies. And that creates a whole tree of how they're interrelated And it's the whole strategic structure, okay? So for an organization like that, when it comes to uh, globalization, it's the product. So we're talking about product globalization here. And whether it is a product which is a toy, let's say, or if it is a drug in, in life sciences, or if it is an application, let's say Chrome as a browser is a product, So if you have, or Skype, another product, that product now has to be developed. It has a product life cycle of how it becomes to be the product that can be sold. So that product uh, globalization has different stages. And the two very obvious that we know is the product internationalization and the product localization. So the first part is where they take either the code or the product or the screens, whatever it is. So if it's, uh, let's say, a medical device, it has screens. And they take that and they render it as generic as possible. So then it can be adapted during the localization phase into the various locales. Okay, And think about a locale not necessarily as a language, Okay, because there are locales, multiple locales in certain countries. So for example, let's take the US, we have three time zones. Each time zone is a different locale when it comes to time, you know? So that time has to be adjusted three times for the US. So when you render it generic, you strip it off of all those things that will create an issue if it was different. And then when you start dressing it up again with all the specifics that are required, then you also need to have the requirements of the country because there are compliances, there are regulations, there are laws that you need to follow. And I'll give you a very good example. A product has a drop-down menu of all the countries in the world, and they have Nepal there. And China says, no, we're not authorizing this because Nepal is not a country. So that's part of the things that you need to be aware when you're doing your internationalization, but also when you're doing your localization. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's a pretty sensitive topic. Like if you're localizing a product for the Chinese market, you have to be careful with Taiwan and and, and those other countries. Yes, indeed. So within this product, You know, we have uh, teams that uh, are the product management team and the international product management team. 
And what they do is they take care of this product and they add features to it or iterations or uh, different versions if it's a physical product or if it's a medical device, you know, different patterns or adding things to it. And that's the product management team. Okay. Now, these people not necessarily are aware of absolutely everything around the world that happens, but it is their job to be able to sell it internationally. Okay. But they don't do the actual job. They have other people that do it for them. Then we have another aspect of a team on the client side, which is the program management team. And the program managers are basically operation specialists. So they're working on various processes. I'll give you an example. It could be that the, you know, working with uh, these products is so complicated that they need to have a training program manager who then documents how the entire globalization, internationalization, localization is going to train the people that are part of the workflow. That's one example of program management. Another example could be a large corporation that has so many products and so many teams working simultaneously that they need to have a financial specialist who looks after the profitability of these projects. So that could be another program manager as part of the team. And a vendor manager, a vendor manager is also part of this program, you know, so this vendor has to deal with seven or 10, you know, translation uh, language, you know, providers and so on and so forth. So these two roles don't exist on the vendor side. And that's what makes them unique on the client side. Then we have engineering. So we have the international, internationalization engineering. And then we have the localization engineers, and we also have the quality assurance on the client side. Now, these can exist on the vendor side as well, because they have, you know, clients on the technical side that they need to have in-house internationalization engineers. So they offer it as a service. And they also need to have localization engineers because they offer that as a service. And finally, quality assurance is part of what a vendor does. So they definitely have, you know, those quality assurance people. So on that client side, these roles are the very typical ones. But in addition to these, you can find out that there are people, there are organizations that would put their content under, you know, this process, or they would put their marketing, or they would put you know, any of the other functions that are relating with international strategies. Some of them will do it too much, some of them not so much. So, for example, under Anna Schlegel, for example, I believe she has a whole team of engineers, which is not the case in other corporations where the globalization manager may not have engineers other than, you know, the specific internationalization and localization engineers. So I think that kind of covers the, the client side a little bit. And then on the vendor side, we have the more traditional roles where we have, you know, the translation providers, the translation engineers, testers, proofreaders, linguists, you know, editors, 
machine translation and post editors and all of these roles that I think we're very familiar with. So there's no point in, in getting into detail for them. But talking about the vendors, and you mentioned that Translation Commons also provides resources for them. I believe you recently talked about how like a successful freelance translator, and this is like kind of related, that the trend is that for them to be successful, it's three areas. It's the business skills, the linguistic skills, and the technological skills, right? So does this apply as well to you know, the vendor side in the big picture of globalization, not just for translators? That's a very good question, and thanks for bringing this up. So I used to say that we need to have technolinguists, okay? So every translator needs to know the technical side so well, needs to be aware of what they're translating for is used to and everything. But of course, today we have so many translators that the ones that are more successful are not necessarily just because they have a good quality of translation and they're quick and, you know, they have to have all those other business skills. Some of the soft skills to, you know, have good communication with the vendors, some of them work directly with clients, they need to be able to be aware of how to sign a contract, for example. So they don't have to be lawyers, but they need to be aware. They need to have those skills. And at the same time, they can't allow, you know, uh, vendors to pay them when they want. They need to have some sort of a policy that this is when I get paid. And if you don't pay me on the 30 days that we've agreed, I'm going to chase you. So all of these are skills they need to build up. And of course, there's the marketing skills. You know, how do you position yourself? Do you position yourself for one specialization because that brings you a lot of money, but then you can do other specializations. You just haven't done the marketing for those. And all these decisions that freelancers and linguists need to think about. The same way I believe the vendors are changing and morphing. So our industry right now is going through changes. We have a huge merger and acquisition going on. And we also have a lot of clients choosing to go directly to translators and having a team of translators, for example, clients that have six languages. It's very easy for them to have a team for these six languages. And some clients will choose now to do that because the value that the agency was giving them wasn't there. So a lot of the big vendors are adding a lot of value precisely for that reason, to keep the interest. But at the same time, we want to look at uh, what they're doing in general. And I've been very surprised with various big companies and their positioning. So recently I've been looking at uh, the revamp that Lionbridge did on their... Oh, that, I, was, I was thinking Lionbridge. I was yeah. thinking, you said that I also saw the revamp and I'm like, up, 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 here it comes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And their positioning right now is communication. They say breaking barriers, building bridges. Okay, so they're saying we are your communication partner. We're the mm -hmm. best to communicate your message. If you look at Transperfect, they say, we know how. That's the business aspect. So they're saying, we're your best business partner. We know how to do anything you need anywhere. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then we have SDL. And they say, we optimize the content supply chain. 
So we're mm-hmm. your content yeah. partner. Mm-hmm. So you can see yeah. at our three biggest translation companies, organizations, they have three distinct, you know, positionings. It's more than just translation, right? They put themselves earlier into the process and not, you know, when translation used to be handled. Exactly. Well, it's also an interesting, I mean, it's a bit of a sleight of hand as well, isn't it? I mean, a lot of what they're doing now is the same service they were doing five years ago, or whenever they change that, like, I'm sure they've added new services, they do things with AI. I'm sure they have new skills, and they're doing all these things. But a lot of the stuff they're doing is probably the same as it was when they called it something else. Don't you think? Yeah, it is true that the bread and butter of our industry is translation. And it's not going to (laughs) change. Interpretation is becoming very big and active, and people are becoming more and more aware of it. There's more automation and platforms. But at the end of the day, even as an industry, it's much smaller than the translation industry. So the language, the translation is the biggest service that we can provide. It's our bread and butter. So why change that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Like we're so we're be you know we're a TMS and CAT tool, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember I was a client of WordBee back in two thousand eight. That's how I got started and and got to know WordBee. And it was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, like you can do the translations, you can manage everything, you can you know they were just starting to do like automation and stuff. And now it's 10 years later, and it I don't know, it, it actually became a reality. Like companies, it is really a lot easier for them to manage and create translations. <laughs> it's just gotten easier to provide the service, and it's kind of remarkable. But I, I, it sounds to me like these companies are doing the right thing by shifting their attention towards new services or added value and, and things like that. It, it makes perfect sense. It makes me wonder what the WordBee message should be. Like if their message is you know, we're going to add all this value or we know stuff and we have all the knowledge or content, uh, go global. Like what should the word be strategy be as a, as a TMS and cat tool that enterprises can use? Well, I wouldn't be able to help you just like that at the top of my head, (laughs) (laughs) but I can give you an indication. I mean, I was surprised again, recently, a few months ago, I came across a YouTube video on LinkedIn. And it was from a transcription company called Way With Words. It was a beautiful YouTube video, very emotional and very appealing. I was like stunned. I said, how can you make transcription so emotional, (laughs) you know, and and so appealing? (laughs) They did that, right? And their tagline was transcription made personal. And they had all these personal circumstances and people at, you know, pivotal moments of, of their lives, you know, and, and that's personal, right? So that emotional, personal positioning for me was uh, like a, a revelation. If they can do it, then the rest of us can do it as well. We can appeal to people because language is personal. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the outcome of language, which is personal, but it's the generation of language, which is personal too. <laughs> Good. We're revamping the webpage in, in like over the course of this quarter. So <laughs> appeal to people. Yeah. This is uh, just going to put a star <laughs> next to that as the, the word be marketing department. And, and I'll send you my inbox. Like, yeah, right. No, right. Awesome. But that's a great example. In the end, it all comes down to positioning 
and a lot of marketing skills too. I mean, like you said, it's our bed and butter. It's still mostly the same services. It's just how you sell it or how businesses sell it. Very true. Well, you know, before we sign off here, I just want to mention something. I was I was just on vacation and I was, you know, we were driving through the mountain West Coast. And you mentioned earlier that there are three locales, right, in the States, but there's actually four, right? Because we have the mountain time zone. And I do the same thing every time because there's East Coast, yes, Central Standard, yes, Mountain yes, Time, yes. West Pacific go. Time, right? Yes, and I four. miss that mountain time. Like yes. I end up on the West Coast and I'm like, and I think I went one hour back, but I actually went two. <laughs> and I don't know what that says about me or the Mountain West or... <laughs> Whatever, like, I don't know, Idaho doesn't count, or I don't know what it means exactly, but uh, it's like I do that all the time. Yeah, I always forget there are four times. Right. Thanks for correcting me. I won't do that mistake again. Yeah. <laughs> I do it every time. I think I did it. I was, I did it on the vacation like twice. I don't even know how I did it twice. But, uh, I was even doubting myself there for a moment when you said three times. So I was like, hmm, really? <laughs> yeah. It's like, hmm, do they have a half time zone? Like, uh, <laughs> anyways, I think it's about time we wrap this up. Up. Thank you so much for joining us today. That was another episode of the International Bus. And everyone have a great International Year of the Indigenous Languages. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thanks.